Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this July episode of Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and Buildings on Air is the show where we talk about architecture and left politics, sometimes more of one and more of the other. Um, But we've got a great show lined up for you today, and it's very exciting to be back in the studio uh, with producer DJ Wu in the house. it feels like forever. We 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 took June off, and um, because of the way that first Saturday fell this month, it just I feel like I haven't been in the radio booth in like a, a long time. <laughs> but so so it's really good to be talking with you today. Um, get back on that horse, um, and we have a fantastic show. Uh, let me give you the breakdown. Um, for the first hour or so, uh, we'll be talking about left perspectives on infrastructure um, with Neil and Andrea. I'll let them introduce themselves and. In a few seconds here. Um, then we'll take a short break and we'll answer your listener questions about architecture. Um, regular mailbag correspondents, uh, Anne Louie and Craig Rashke couldn't be here today. Um, so we'll have a guest, uh, my former uh, boss, actually, uh, Tom Lee, great designer. So stay tuned for that. Then we'll take another break and uh, we'll recap the American Institute of Architects convention, um, the highs and the many, many lows um, with uh, 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 Donna and Ken Roberts of uh, Archinect fame. So that's the show. Um, that's what you've got to look forward to. And without further ado, um, Neil, Andrea. How are you guys? Doing great. Thanks, Kiefer. Yeah. yeah. Su- super happy to have you. Um, maybe you guys can introduce yourselves. Um, tell us why you're in town. I know why you're in town. It's for a super cool reason. <laughs> sure. We're here for a conference. It's a conference of the International Socialist Organization, Socialism 2018, talking about building the left, um, both in Chicago, across the across the nation, and some perspectives and conversation about international um, struggles, kind of what's happening all over the country, and talking about theory, history, all those things. Yeah, it's the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, and and what do you guys do that makes you inter- like good candidates for buildings on air uh, beyond the general leftism? <laughs> well, um, I work in the in the with this uh, for the city of Portland. Um, I'm not a planner, but I do do geographic information systems, so I do GIS work um and so i'm in those conversations and i've always kind of been interested in the built environment so i've you know been a you know strong advocate of 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 trying to find ways of making the built environment actually built in the interests of of workers and, and and poor people in the masses as opposed to the way it tends to be built now which is for the people with all the power and the money and the agency at this point yeah totally um yeah and i am a structural engineer um, I currently practice in New York, but I lived in Portland for about 10 years. So I, Neil and I kind of discussed these types of ideas for, for yeah. many, many years, talked about gentrification kind of before and while it was happening. Um, you know, I've kind of followed architectural design and architectural practice and try to integrate the beyond just math part of engineering into how do we impact the built environment and what impact do we as designers beyond simply the architectural profession but designers as a whole have on society and why is it that we are so separated from the vast majority of people that use the 
buildings infrastructure that yeah we design yeah so. totally yeah and i'm super happy that um you guys were in town and this conference was happening um on a buildings on air weekend because <laughs> I, I i knew the second i saw that i was like gotta get someone uh uh into the into the booth <laughs> and then i saw uh on the schedule that uh neil gave a fantastic talk on infrastructure um uh the other day and i was like this is great uh, especially since infrastructure is a really hot topic right now um, for progressive architects to be thinking about and thinking through. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and I, I thought maybe a good place to start um, was something, a kind of provocation, maybe like the thesis of, of your talk, which was this this question of like, okay, so the right wing, like even Donald Trump, right? The left wing, like everyone, like wants to improve the nation's crummy infrastructure. And you kind of highlighted like all of the, with, with some very important notable exceptions I imagine we'll get to, but you highlighted kind of the state of the nation's infrastructure. It had uh, D ratings from the civil engineers, like um, there's real problems here. But there's this big question. If, if everyone from every point of the political spectrum seems to agree that, uh, you know, this is something that's a problem, then like, how is there still no kind of motion on it? Which I think is a really interesting question. Um, and, and, and your talk kind of had, had some ideas about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it is, it's a, it, it is sort of a interesting sort of conundrum that like everyone's saying it's a problem across the spectrum and yet uh, very little is being done about it um, and I guess what what I the the conclusions that I've I've come to at this point and, and they may change at some uh, at some point is that um, since the early 70s the US there was a global economic crisis and there was the, a new a new um, understanding of how to run the economy called neoliberalism and involved uh, first and foremost an attack on working class uh, people uh, particularly uh, it started you know in, in, in North America and Britain under Reagan and Thatcher mm -hmm. um, but it also involved uh, a, a privatization of, of public in uh, public institutions, infrastructure, things like that, um, as well as deregulation and things like that. Um, and and what, what I think happens, and this is borrowing from the Scottish Marxist Neil Davidson, is that there's a contradiction in which you continue to cut taxes and continue to, to uh, stop spending money on infrastructure, important infrastructure, because this is sort of like the the um, the, the doctrine that these regimes, these neoliberal liberal regimes are following, to the point where like even uh, the, the way that capitalism depends on infrastructure mm -hmm. winds up, it, it winds up collapsing and they lose, um, according to the, the Senate Democrats, like $200 billion a year. Um, it, it, I mean, David Harvey talks about how Marx uh, talks about capitalism as being value in motion and if your circuit for trying to get something from here to here breaks down you're 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 throwing a wrench in the gears yeah and that's kind of the conundrum like why is that and so I think there's this sort of um, there's this sort of like almost a not really a self-destructive logic but a logic in which neoliberalism is actually undermining the ways in which capitalism can um, continue to grow yeah um, in certain ways and that and then in other ways it's found ways to grow and expand and find places to make profits and you know what Marx would say accumulate right right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this idea is like it's really fascinating that that even though it might be in the long term interest of kind of 
everyone, uh, capitalists included, uh, capitalists especially, that they kind of put an investment because it's so long-term in nature and, and, and they're focused so much on short-term gain uh, and structurally focused on short-term gain, um, not kind of morally or ethically or like it's, it's not like a mindset thing. Um, it's, it's, it's a bigger issue than that, that they, that they just simply don't end up doing this. Especially, and and that's kind of compounded by um, other forms of oppression and and uh, uh, racism and et cetera. And underserved areas keep getting more underserved and et cetera. Yeah. So I I, I mean I it's a fascinating idea and I, and I I think also one of the things I appreciated in your talk was the kind of breadth. Um, uh, by which you, th you you defined infrastructure and talked about some of these issues, right? Because I think one's brain first jumps to like infrastructure as roads, <laughs> but like dumb question uh, after we like hit the hard theory, like dumb question, uh, what is infrastructure? Because <laughs> it's so much. And I think like you spend all the time, uh, a, a lot of your time mapping it, I imagine. Um, and then we in our, our profession uh, spend a lot of time I'm making sure that um, it's in the right place and not running into anything. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, like, so, so what is it? Uh, big question. Yeah, bro I mean, the AS, so people frequently, and you mentioned, you alluded to the ASCE, American Society of Civil Engineers yeah. report earlier, yeah. which comes out every four years and talks about the state of America's infrastructure. And it actually breaks down infrastructure. I think it's nine different categories, um, roads, airports, um, you know, you could talk about water, which which encompasses a huge like water, wastewater, electrical infrastructure and electrical grid. I mean, when we think about infrastructure and we talk about that, it really is everything that pretty much makes the world work from like a built environment standpoint could right. somehow fall into that infrastructure mm. category. Yeah. Yeah, and and then there's the question of like who pays for that, right? Which is related to this question about neoliberalism, and uh, you know, I guess traditionally it's it's been the kind of the government in in large part, not entirely, um, because it's a kind of it's a great example of a, resources that are generally shared, <laughs> or or uh, encompass or, or used if not shared. That's maybe the wrong word, but uh, used by many stakeholders or different groups of people. Um, and and the, the kind of political institutions that we build seem like the logical place for that kind of thing to happen. But um, one of the other things that was highlighted in the conversation yesterday was that even that kind of situation is changing. Um, I think another kind of important touchstone in this conversation is that all of these the, everything in this kind of nine categories is is kind of being uh, paid for or uh, these projects are being realized through this kind of mechanism of a public-private partnership or a P3. Um, so what, what it, tell us what that is. Oh, sure, sure. Well, I'll have to give you like a really short definition. And it's certainly not inclusive. Uh, you know, it doesn't encompass everything. But you, you know, it's it's it, maybe it's helpful. So um, and, and, and just to say, I think it depends kind of on what the infrastructure system you're talking about as to whether it's public or private, because the electric yeah. electrical grids, a lot of them, I mean, some of them were, were public and, in uh, uh, in, in, you know, some of the New Deal ones, but a lot of them actually emerged out of, you know, like Edison and stuff like that and de uh, developing sure. small grids and actually making monopoly agreements 
alliance with cities oh, in, yeah, yeah. in the in the earlier part of the 20th century. Um, and then the interesting thing is that another comrade brought up in the discussion was that the New York subway actually used to be owned by multiple private <laughs> entities, <laughs> right. and then they ran it into the ground, and then it became public, right? Yeah. And so that's why it still has this like 1920s, 1930s signal system, right? Like yeah. it's it's a you know the capitalists were just happy to just dump it and be like, all right, now you need to take care of it. Sure. Um, but anyways, public-private partnerships. Sorry about that. Um, it's They tend to be agreements where um, private entities or investors or things like that, companies, um, enter into some sort of government-mandated plan um, to build, say, something like a highway or some sort of um, project in which they're given a certain level of control over like how it's built. Maybe they're even the contractors. Yeah. Um, and they, uh, they are often given the leverage to actually collect user fees or tolls or things like mm-hmm. that. Um, and it's been much more popular in places like Europe and actually in, in, in the global south than America, but now it's becoming more and more um, popular in the U.S. Mm. Um, as, a, as a model for finding ways. The, inter- the, 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 the things that I think are kind of worth flagging are that, first of all, like as David Harvey says in the brief history of neoliberalism, it's a way t- for the private market can sor- to sort of like inject or sort of incorporate its logic into public mm. um, functions, right? And so that means there's a pressure a lot of times um, to make workers work faster or harder for less. There is a, uh, a logic to cut costs on materials, to sort of find ways of making as much money as possible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and those sort of things, I haven't done a ton of, I haven't found a ton of research on it, but that idea of like, you know, those could even lead to uh, right. possible collapses in, in newer infrastructure. Um, but then the other thing is the user fees, right? And I think Chicago is has that <laughs> notorious P3 where it's the... the um, parking meters where yes. like people got gouged there, yes. Indiana Tollway got, you know, they had to raise, they were subsidizing basically this public-private partnership on the tollway and then they raised the price and it just like, I think it went double or triple, I can't remember the numbers yeah. or something like that, but it was like, it was a huge jump. So I mean, these are these are the things like in the interest, the other flag I think that's worth, or the, the other thing that's worth talking about is that like, if it's the market logic that's determining these projects, what gets built and what get, doesn't get built, right. it means that places, you know, communities that don't, aren't seen as like, um, uh, communities that are going to be able to like pay user fees or tolls or something like that or it's not going to be advantage right. uh, advantageous for the 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 firms to actually make money off of they're going to be underserved mm-hmm. like right. they'll be completely bypassed in some cases yeah so. mm-hmm. oh man i i have this like dream of like someone listening to to this w- while they're like going through a tollway <laughs> on the indiana skyway but i i think that uh by the time you get there our our little low power station here is drowned out by a uh, country music <laughs> maybe they have online streaming on their phone yes yes with the beautiful lumpen radio app <laughs> but yeah i, I mean I, it's interesting because because it, it it's a way of kind of of course like the the democrats and the republicans the, the mainstream democrats and especially or at least um are, are all interested in this because they've kind of bought hook line and sinker this idea that um you know private is better just always right and and um 
you know, like in, in, and in this day and age, like, you know, there's kind of questions about, I, I think we might understand in this room that, um, there's even limits to kind of how democratic and open and accessible, um, kind of the government can be, um, in, in this kind of economic system and paradigm. Um, but, but nevertheless, what we have now is totally abysmal. Um, and they kind of just send it out there to say, you know, private, private does it better. And then everyone else, the, the, the government is on the hook for any of the project liabilities and, uh, all the upside is uh, pocketed by corporations. And that, that seems to me to be um, a very bad thing. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not even just, I mean, you, you, you mentioned that they're bought, you know, hook, line, and sinker into the idea that private is better, but and that's one way to contextualize or conceptualize it. Yeah. But I think, you know, one could look at the other side, which is, is it that they're bought into it or that their interests are the interests of right. the corporations? I mean, who is funding those campaigns? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, ca who, the campaign for whomever is then going to broker a deal with somebody to build X, Y, or Z, you know, expressway, toll road, um, that's going to take, you know, cars and traffic away and funding away potentially from the, the state run, um, the state administered road yeah. um, I mean we did it we we built all of this it's actually interesting if you look historically at the development of American American infrastructure in comparison to right now places around the world where infrastructure is being developed on very much so a public-private partnership right. model like all of Africa is being developed on what one could say is a public-private partnership model right like China is China largely other countries as well but largely China is funding most road infrastructure development all across the continent mm. here in the States we developed a lot of our infrastructure privately right. and now there's been this shift towards I'm sorry we developed it publicly and now there's been a shift towards private infrastructure and the ramifications of that on the part of corporations and this you know to get back to the Democratic and the Republican Party you know we could we could go through a few examples of um, the the outcomes of p3s like toll road I think it's um, toll road 91 in California that was built in the 90s like part of the deal of building that um, was that the state of California could not I think it was for like 20 or 30 or 40 years could not spend money on improving the road that that toll road would would be taking traffic off of so they couldn't build extra lanes they couldn't do anything to ameliorate traffic because of the deal that they had cut with the yeah. corporation that built and then administered the road and that's just one example of of many and that is a way for our taxpayer money to affect like to either not be used or in other examples of p3s to literally go straight into the pockets of a corporation the gothels bridge that just opened in new york um i think it's the state of new jersey is going to be paying the contractor or the company that was a part of that it's 55 million dollars a year for the next 40 years regardless of what use of the bridge is and that is like it we pay our taxes and then it literally goes directly to a corporation right, right. what type of a deal is that on the part of the taxpayer and those of us that are actually using the infrastructure on a regular basis yeah so there's like all there's a lot of contradictions when we talk about like politics and where money is going and other things. I don't think it's just a notion that private is better. Right. It's that actually for like the pockets of whomever that, <laughs> right, right. that, that, that the, the, the shill, you know, the Democratic Party shill or the yeah. corporate shill is like their pockets get lined. by Right. It. So right. Of course, it's better. Yeah, it's not just <laughs> ideological. It's material. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I and I think it, it's it's interesting to because because there are there are things happening. Right. Like even though there's the D rating, um, there, there are these public-private partnerships and there is kind of infrastructure um, investment happening, but in very sort of specific and limited circumstances. I'm wondering if you guys can talk about that. Yeah, sure. Well, it's um, what I th the the development of what's happened kind of in the neoliberal period. That's the interesting thing is is that like, yeah. it's not like all infrastructure is in crisis. Um, there are actually infrastructure uh, programs that have been 
carried out all through the the neoliberal period, mm-hmm. particularly after the 80s, but have been actually, according to like scholars like Stephen Graham, who's focused on infrastructure, um, they're these sort of locationally specific enclaves, and mm-hmm. they can they can um, be anything from sort of like a business and uh, improvement district, sort of like a downtown area that's there for high end consumption mm-hmm. and for high end like living and things like that. You know, you want to yeah. build high end apartments, things like that. Whether people are living in them all the time or if it's just like a summer house for really rich people is is another thing. And then there's things like science and technology parks that tend to be sort of like attached to universities. Right. That happens both in the global south and in uh, in places in the U.S. Um, as well as, and then you have places like uh, export uh, processing zones, EPZs, mm. um, that tend to happen more in the global south. But uh, that that tends to be those same these sort sort of enclaves in which infrastructure and in, in, in the state is involved in this too. It's not just like you know private industry wants to come in. It's like they are given they are oftentimes given tax breaks. They are mm. oftentimes given funding, things like that. And the the regulations are actually altered a lot of times for them. I mean, even the logistics center out in um, Joliet uh, was is a public-private yeah. partnership. Um, so logistics, uh, logistics hubs are another one of those. But yeah. what happens is, is you have these high-end um, infrastructure that's oftentimes not integrated with the broader sets of infrastructures that were laid down in previous periods, mm. particularly that like 1930s to 1960s kind of you know government spending period right. um, that tend to serve only the interests of the rich and powerful and completely bypass working class and poor areas right. um, that would you know where they would shop or where they would live. Right. Right. And it was it was interesting because the, the examples, I think, of Detroit and Puerto Rico came up of places where this is happening. And, you know, I, you can really easily imagine like um, like a real pat on the back headline <laughs> coming like, you know, oh, here here's a hundred million dollars in infrastructure investment like coming to Puerto Rico. But it's like uh, uh, maybe the like these mechanisms help explain like how that money is like, yes, it's going to the physical like location that is Puerto Rico, but in a very specific place that's not actually serving um, more most Puerto Ricans, right? And and I think there's similar things happening, um, in, in maybe most cities and places across the U.S. Um, yeah, I, I forget who, maybe it was it was someone else who was bringing it up, but but there was a conversation about uh, Detroit, and I wish I remembered the specific example that came up. I don't know. Do you guys remember it? I think so. Was it about Detroit and how Quicken Loans is now like? the largest employer in Detroit and they they're building like their own streetcar line. Yes. Mm-hmm. It yep. was yes, it was the streetcar stuff. Yeah. Yep. The M1. Oh, yeah, among goodness. other things, yeah. right? I mean that inner Detroit is, or the new Detroit is what they call it right after the the 2013 Ooh. economic it crisis. It makes you cringe. Yeah. The yeah. new the Detroit. Detroit. Yeah. Why yeah. does it have to be new? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's 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 you you see it so starkly that that M1 rail that you're talking about was was supposed to actually go beyond. There's this place called Midtown that was sort of mm. revamped for basically like you know upper upper middle class and yeah. professional hipsters, right? Um, that are that now live there. It was actually supposed to go beyond there, but it's basically just the down town and midtown that it serves and that's what that that sort of small little um patch of a of a you know infrastructural enclave is yeah. in detroit and it's yeah it's full of speculation real estate you know every every place on the line that was developed um was full of real estate speculation where high-end apartments went up things like that there's bike paths and there's yeah. all this you know really nice stuff and then there's there's actually the you know what we were talking about before the out of place right there's their they have their own security force 
that coordinates with Detroit police and Wayne State police to make sure that like this area of like high end consumption isn't being disturbed by people who are of a completely right. different class, poor people, working class people, people of color, um, you know, being on the street and things like that. They literally and, like keep them, have they built the infrastructure to keep those people out? I, I, I don't know? think so. <laughs> yeah. I, that may, that may, they may not have their own private yeah, infrastructure yeah. <laughs> for that, but they, they do have their own private uh, police force, wow. which, which uh, Christian Parenti talks about in yeah. Lockdown Nation too. A lot of like cities kind of have their own, you know, these corporate, kind of enclaves have their own security forces that use, you know, yeah, push people out that that don't that they don't feel belong. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and a shout out to friends of the show, uh, Detroit Resists. Um, I'd love I, I'm I'm sure uh, some of their members will make it on buildings on air in, in the near future. And, and I'm, they'll they'll be a. The, they're they're the pros at shedding light on, on kind of these conditions and problems. So I'm I'm looking forward to to that. Um, but yeah, I, I mean I think I think it's it, it's the problems are kind of obvious. And I mean we didn't even touch on like sort of Flint um, yet. I mean there's 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 all kinds of um, examples that Standing Rock, right? I mean like uh, the it's kind of interesting that these um, these. I don't know movements uh, that that are about kind of critical infrastructure issues are like focal points of activism, especially since um, like often uh, infrastructure is kind of very invisible. Like even when it's in your face, like you don't really think about you know like the viaduct and like all of the millions of dollars of like stuff that's like going over <laughs> the viaduct in your neighborhood like on a daily basis. But like it's happening, and so it's it's been interesting to kind of see that, and and even from a kind of more labor specific standpoint like Verizon strikes there's been lots mm -hmm. of conversation on the left especially from like Kim Moody about how you know focusing on these logistics hubs as these things become kind of centralized are huge opportunities for um, movements from below to kind of have some real like leverage so I you know I, th I think um, even beyond kind of the the, I don't know. Infrastructure just kind of seems to be in in the air. It seems to be a very pertinent issue right now. Um, so I don't know. Like, what what opportunities do you guys see for kind of like activism around around this issue? Um, and also, this is like maybe a, a second question, and it's a big question. Like, th there's a kind of a there's a horizon to like what we can accomplish now too, right? In in this kind of paradigm. So like, what what would that horizon be, and what might be beyond that horizon? Maybe I'll go with the first question. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, go, I'm gonna I'll leave the horizon question to Neil. Um, I mean, I think you gave a few good examples. I mean, Flint, although admittedly, if we look at two years ago is yeah. almost when, when kind of the Flint mm -hmm. crisis originally emerged. And I think people, people across the country would probably be, if you live in a major city, there is more lead in your water than you think there is. Yeah. And that is just hands down a, tr a true statement. It's just not something that most people are aware of. If we were to go out and do lead testing in most of the buildings in New York, um, yeah. it would be, you you wouldn't be very thrilled with the results if you lived <laughs> in New York. Yeah. Um, same thing with Chicago, same thing with any older city. Um, and I think that there are a lot, like those, there are huge avenues there for building community organization around demanding like safer whether it's clean water safer infrastructure i mean the um the bridge ratings were you know big in the news a few years back when the after the the bridge collapse um in minnesota because um, mm -hmm. i think it's you know the number of bridges that are you know close to failure across the united states is, is actually a, a scarily high number yeah um, in portland they actually replaced they finally replaced a bridge that was literally i wouldn't go over it when i lived in portland because yeah. i was like i don't know it could fall down <laughs> if i go over the bridge yeah. i'm a structural engineer i'm not going over the bridge 
bridge. <laughs> My friends stopped going over the bridge as well. Um, but I think that there there are avenues there to 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 organize and for people that are not necessarily within the the building industry. But I yeah. do think that there are some in- interesting avenues for raising conversations and organizing around these issues for for people that are in the building industry, right. whether it's architects, engineers, contractors. You know, for example, people don't always think about our borders yeah. as um, a portion or a part of American infrastructure. Right. They absolutely are. And all of the conversations that happened around um, the wall and building the wall and how many um, both individuals and eventually firms and eventually organizations, you know, stood up and said, like, I cannot and will not be a part of building this. Right. Um, and that was actually like there was organization that that happened around that, whether it was on a very informal level in individual right. workplaces with people saying, you know, my boss is considering going after a contract for this and yeah. all the workers saying, I don't think so. Um, I am not going to work on that, and I'll go find another job. I mean, we're yeah. also lucky lucky enough to be in an economy where that is a, is a point of conversation yes. yeah. for a lot of people. Um, but like that is, you know, those types of workplace organizing questions, I think, are um, a very interesting realm or a possibility um, to to go down. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, and and as as listeners, frequent listeners to the show will know, uh, I'm very very excited and passionate <laughs> about white white collar organizing, um, I, especially in the built in when it comes to the built environment, um, because right now uh, the kind of organizing environment in the construction unions is like deeply deeply conservative. That's not strictly true, um, and I hope someone is out there shouting at their radio, um, ready to prove me wrong. Um, but but I you know the 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 construction unions in in recent decades in the recent last decade have not been exactly a um a, a beacon of hope in terms of uh you know being being progressive on on any of these issues um but yeah i i don't know i i guess and and then there's this question about horizons too um that i couldn't restate if you asked me to <laughs> but, but but i i guess uh you know i i, th- I think the the question really is one about like you know like what what's worth fighting for now and what what can we win now um or in the near term future um and and what will we um to really get the kind of infrastructure we want to see. First of all, what does that look like? And second of all, like, how, how do we get there, right? Um, yeah, it's a, it's like I always say on the show, like, I set the table with, like, big unfair questions, and then I see what the smart people <laughs> I invite to the show pick up and uh, uh, and juggle with. Or, or, or trip over. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got thoughts. You, you thoughts on this one, Neil? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess... It, 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 Maybe I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going down like the right uh, alley with this, but I feel like there's there's there are questions around there. There are like these kind of almost like interlocking questions around yeah. stuff. There's like a question of self-determination. If you look at like the Puerto Rican people yeah. and the, the PROMESA, the, the, the management board that they're under, and you look at uh, indigenous water protectors that are, you know, that have been fighting against the oil pipelines and stuff. Right. There's an issue of self-determination that I think that the left needs to um uh, completely recognize the right of self-determination to to, to yeah. all all 
nations and oppressed peoples um, uh, their, their right to self-determination in, in the face of these infrastructural projects and in the face of uh, capitalism and colonialism and racism that's that's been, you know, meted down upon them. And, and then you can draw these connections to like the democracy of like Flint and Detroit, the fact that they are under emergency management as well, yeah. right? Like this is, this, is, this is how neoliberalism operates, right? You have these like heartless technocrats basically determining that like, these people are going to wind up being lead, you know, poisoned with lead and stuff like that out of cost-cutting measures. So it's like there's this, there's these, there's these struggles for self-determination and democracy and and, yeah. and against racism because this is going to be affecting uh, people of color in vulnerable communities more than it's going to be affecting other communities, and it's going right. to be affecting working class and poor communities more. And then I think there's this possibility of actually um, working class people need to reproduce their ability to work on a daily basis right. too, right? You need your food, you need your sleep, you need your, you know, drinkable water, your ability to wash clothes. I mean, this is all unfortunately uh, thrown onto the shoulders of women and femmes in the household. And that's, yeah. some, that's another struggle we need to talk about. Um, but those those struggles, even for housing and stuff like that, I mean, this is wrapped up in gentrification as well. Like right. workers' own ability to like live their lives is wrapped up in infrastructure, right. wrapped up in the built environment, yeah. and like contingent on water coming out of the tap when exactly. you turn it Exactly, and whether the water's gonna like be healthy for <laughs> yeah. you, or if it's gonna like poison you and your kids, yeah. like it's poisoned. You know, like the, the the children in public housing in New York. I guess there were like 800 children from 2012 yeah. to 2016 that have lead poisoning. It's not even just right. elevated levels of lead. It's yeah. lead poisoning from pu public housing, right? 278 schools have been tested for, for lead poisoning, stuff like that. So it's, it's these issues of uh, that I think it's infrastructure, as I said in my talk, is contested terrain, right? Like capitalism, capitalism and the bosses don't always get to determine this. If we can build a left that's capable of, um, you know, uh, winning struggles, bringing more people around. We have the ability to actually like say what we want and go forward. Right. And I think we're living in a period that's also really scary because we have, you know, we have Trump and we have the rise of the far right and things like that. But we also have the rise of people saying, I actually want a fundamentally different society. Right. And part of that is, is like, you know, let's talk about what does that mean? And like, what, how does the built environment fit into that? How do we have a built environment that's democratically decided that respects the self-determination of yeah. oppressed peoples and oppressed nations, things like that? And like, you know, that 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 is that needs to be part of the conversation for for, for our, our project as the broader left. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the horizons, that is a really good kind of big picture um, answer. And you start to get at like some concrete things that people could like, people can organize around lead and affordable housing facilities, et cetera. And I'm, you know, I'm fairly entrenched in like the organizing world and the built environment in New York, although I do try to have like a larger picture of things. And, you know, there are all these conversations about resiliency and resilient infrastructure. And we could even add into this conversation, which would be an out, we would be on a radio show for, for weeks if we started to talk about like climate change and, and how this impacts our, our infrastructure. Um, and, relating those conversations and what mainstream, you know, quote unquote mainstream or liberal politicians, you know, people are very up on, well, how do we build resilient infrastructure? Let's talk about climate change. You know, how are we going to mitigate our our cities? And are we going to build these big walls? Are we going to do other things? How do we how do we take that rhetoric and, and take it to things that that because those things are important, but there are aspects of our infrastructure and resiliency that impact a much larger larger swath of people. So, in addition to the, the lead statistics, you know, I think it's four out of five um, residents of affordable residents in affordable housing buildings in New York went, went without heat at some point this winter. 
four out of five yeah. people. Like, how do we say, well, resilient buildings means that people that live in in um, state owned or operated or partially owned or operated facilities actually have heat. Right. That is resiliency from a social standpoint. And how do we start to retake control of the the funding mechanisms that yeah. that that push where that funding goes. And that's where, you know, the, these questions of funding and how far away from our control um, our infrastructure and the built environment is, is, is a very important question to me. It's one of the reasons why I get so upset about P3s because that starts to take the control mm. even farther away from us. We right. have even fewer decisions that are that are close to our hands when it's in the hands of a corporation. But like there are some very short-term things that we can even use the rhetoric that's being used around, like that's already happening around the built environment to say, well, no, we need heat, we need water, this bridge is falling down, the MTA is literally like you don't know if you will get to work on a daily basis or if you might end up yeah. in a fire or stuck in a tunnel. And there is a direct relationship. I mean, then one, one could also have a whole show on the MTA and, <laughs> and infrastructure. Um, but like the, there's a direct relationship between like uh, a, a refunding deal that happened in the 80s when New York was bankrupt in mm. which, you know, we now pay Wall Street billions of, you know, millions upon millions of dollars every year. And you can look at like issues with rider issues with the system and like a decrease in maintenance and upkeep yeah. that is like in direct correlation to how much money we had to start paying right. Wall Street and like the underfunding of the system. And it's like a directly right. related line. Yeah. Um, and so how do we then then stand up and say like, no, this is actually something that we have to use and millions of people use on a daily basis. Right. And it has to be funded. And right. here is where the money is coming from. And here is, you know, if we raised our tax bracket even a little tiny bit or yeah. we stopped funding wars or like there are so many concrete demands yeah. that I feel like we need to start incorporating into our regular daily rhetoric right. um, and calling out like the conversations that are happening that just kind of obfuscate the issues right. and say like, well, we're going to we're going to talk about these really nice resiliency measures over here. Right. But they're not the measures that actually impact yeah. like the vast majority of people that live yeah. in this particular city or poor people or people of color or whatever it may be. Right. Yeah. No. And I, I think because uh, I, I, I appreciate you mentioning the kind of way in which all of this stuff is tied together, because I'm sure that there's someone like listening to their radio right now and screaming at the radio like, yeah, this is all fine and well, but like, how are you going to pay for it? And like you said, the answer is like, maybe like to stop the wars like, uh, the, you know, that we spend billions, trillions of dollars on. And, um, you know, I think. I, I think like they're they're all of those demands are absolutely interconnected, which is one of the reasons why they're hard to act around too. Um, but but it's also like the task that we have to be up to. Um, and I yeah, and I, I also think it's interesting, you know, when like this this issue of uh, universal healthcare, right? Like in, in single payer healthcare, um, the right to healthcare, I think is also like a pertinent one. I know this is something that Tim Faust talks about all the time is the way in which kind of the built environment um, is like totally linked with the, the health of people um, as we've been discussing and how um, really the push for kind of Medicare for all, like it, it, the reason why there's such a big push back is because it is an existential threat even beyond the kind of uh, money the, the threat it poses to insurance companies and everything else because it means that there's all of a sudden a kind of material interest in addressing these issues like coming from the pub like the public sector from society at large there's a pressure on making sure that everyone has a healthy environment um, because everyone is kind of sharing that burden theoretically right I mean that's not strictly true when it comes to taxes <laughs> but but <laughs> 
<laughs> but 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 I think it's nevertheless a kind of pressure that doesn't exist right now, um, which which I think is is an interesting thing to think about. But yeah, like it's it's that's that's one of the reasons why like this activism is so tricky because in kind of absence of like really like specifically horrific things um, um, to kind of act around the general like interconnectedness is just I, I think it can often be demoralizing to people and lead to lots of cynicism, um, especially when they're not in a kind of organizing environment um, that is conducive to kind of like acting on all of those different levels um, because it's an organization and not just, you know, a, a person who's who's mad. Um, um, I think that's one of the kind of structural things when we talk about the left that separates kind of cynicism from um, a kind of like from, from hope, really, um, if that's not too corny of a thing to say. Um, <laughs> or too big. I don't know. I'm always about the big statements here on Buildings on Air. Uh, <laughs> well, let's take a few minute break um, and we'll be back um, with more conversation on infrastructure in just a couple minutes. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. Um, we're still talking infrastructure. Um, and uh, I, I always say this every episode pretty much, but if you're listening to the podcast version uh, in some future date, one of the things that you're missing is the themed music selections that we have every break from our all from our fantastic producers. <laughs> yeah, that was um, 72, This Highway's Mean by um, Drive-By Truckers, referring to Highway 72 in Alabama, of course. Yeah, see, there you go. You get, so so there's your incentive. Uh, first Saturdays of the month, tune in live. You can stream it on lumpenradio.com. Um, if uh, you are in some far-flung place. Um, but yeah, coming back to infrastructure, um, I mean, I, I, I think we kind of had this conversation backwards from the direction that I'm heading in now because I'm kind of curious to talk now about some of the really like historical and theoretical stuff that came up at the beginning of your talk yesterday. Um, I mean, I think... Um, some people in the show's audience might kind of know know this phrase from a from a man named Carl uh, the the annihil the annihilation of space by time, and so like I'm I'm wondering if if you can kind of help help listeners help us understand kind of some of the 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 big picture thinking from a left perspective on like why infrastructure is important to uh, ad advanced economy, right? Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, with transport and communications, it's like a very I mean, Marx. That's that's one of the things that Marx uh, wrote quite a bit about. Is actually in Volume Two of Capital um, because he's all he's talking about the circulation of commodities and things like that. And um, so there's this, you know, there's the there's the you know just getting back to that whole idea that capitalism is value in motion. Like there is a the annihilation of space by time is crucial, right? You in the time that Marx and Engels are writing, you have these revolutions happening in technology that increase the speed at which you can uh, transport things, right? And communication as well. Yeah. Um, so you have like the invention of the steam engine, and that uh, you can apply that to, to water tra uh, transportation with the steamboat, and then for the locomotives as well, right? Yeah. The, the railroads. And um, what it winds up doing is it, it, it the annihilation of space by time, that concept um, that, that David Harvey then turns into this another sort of jargony term, space-time compression, mm -hmm. um, capitalism doesn't really care about distance. It cares about time, right? It's a very time-based system. You want to be able to get it from here, point A to point yeah. B as soon as possible. So the faster you can do it, <laughs> and like now, because, you know, as, as Kim yeah. Moody in his book On New Terrain talks about it, um, 
the speed has sort of gotten to that point where there isn't much more uh, gains as far as speed. Now it's volume, right? right? But you want to be able to get these raw materials to the workplace, or you want to get this finished commodity over to where you're going to sell it, the market, things like that, as fast as possible. Capitalism's drive for profit necessitates a constant revolutionizing not only of the production process, but the circulation process as well, yeah. getting things from where they need to be uh, from where they are to where they need to be. Right, right. right. Yeah, I, you know, I think one, one of the things I learned in my, like, early days as a, as a lefty was, like, that, that you can define economy uh, as, as how goods are produced, moved, and consumed, right? And, and politics is decisions about <laughs> how that stuff happens and, and who benefits from it. Um, yeah, it, and it also makes me think, uh, I, I kind of just want to say this name on the radio, uh, a great book called The Railway Journey by Wolfgang Schivelbush, best name of all time. But uh, a, a professor, uh, one of my favorite professors from grad school, Jonathan Miller, assigned this reading, and it's it's all about how there's this kind of weird thing that happened um, with with the steam engine, where you could only ever move as fast as nature, right? Whether it was like a horse or the wind on a sailboat, and then all of a sudden everything kind of changes, and uh, it, it, and the whole book is about how that. Um, kind of fundamentally alters like everyone's subjectivity um, and way of relating to the world. Not to mention railroads are not subject to seasonal fluctuations um, like freezing like like rivers freeze, but the railroads um, can still run during the winter. Yeah, uh, yeah, like that one movie. <laughs> uh, what, what movie? The, the 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 movie where there's all the poor people in the back of the train and they're trying to get to the Snowpiercer. Front of, yes, Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer. It's a great. Yeah, there's there's a lot we could talk about there. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, immune from the seasons of uh, nuclear winter, um, <laughs> but not immune from class struggle. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of perfect as a as a metaphor for for this whole conversation, really. <laughs> the one piece of infrastructure that still matters, still runs constantly, yeah, forever, yeah. on the bodies of small children. <laughs> oh goodness, yeah, uh, highly recommend <laughs> Snowpiercer. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we've got like five, six minutes left here. Um, is there any stuff that like I didn't cover or like things that you guys had on your mind or that kind of came up in your brain, but didn't, you didn't get a chance to kind of, um, put, throw it out there. Um, I think the only thing that I was trying to fit in, and it doesn't really, re well, it does relate to infrastructure because people think that, ho you know, people assume, uh, consider hospitals and schools infrastructure. Yeah. And I think the latest teacher strike wave um, uh. is, you know, in a, in a period that is kind of like, you know, this, you know, sometimes, you know, we call it political whiplash, this like, you know, constantly being under attack. It's actually really heartening and inspiring to see teachers who've actually like, when you hear about their conditions really kind of sounds like the same way in which the, you know, the infrastructure has been robbed of funding. They've been yeah. robbed of funding. They have to serve these extra roles of actually like picking up where uh, neoliberalism and all of the cuts have, have, have right. left off. And I think that the, the bravery and the, just the, you know, the, the solidarity that has come out with that teacher strike wave gives, I think can give us hope for, um, you know, future struggles, uh, you know, not only social struggles, but how can those right. combine 
with labor struggles, especially with teacher struggles, which tend to be sort of an amalgam of social struggles and labor struggles with how rooted they are in community. Yeah. Well, and it makes me think, too, you know, one of the one of the great slogans to come out with all these teacher strikes is, you know, the students learning conditions are our working conditions. And, you know, the the success of these movements has a lot to do with um, these workers being able to link their concerns as workers with, um, you know, like genuine concern for the well-being of the the kids they're teaching, but also getting kind of parents and other people um, on on their side. Um, And and a lot of the demands, especially in Chicago with CTU, have been around the built environment Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. the schools. And this issue that you were bringing up earlier about like sort of lead contamination in the schools and and this sort of thing. And so like it, it is a good model that seems applicable to so many other things, right? Because it is all kind of interconnected, right? I mean, like even in a factory where like there's they're making a thing and they're not teaching children, like that's that's like has to do with the built environment and it has to do with like something that other people are going to use in some way or another, and and that applies to the service industry too, I think, um, or the professions, etc. Yeah, yeah. I think you you mentioned it early in the program the you know, the fact that the built environment becomes invisible to so many people. Yeah. And the importance of having radicals in the AEC, the architecture, engineering, construction industry, to be able to help to draw these types of yeah. connections. The fact that when we talk about our teachers' working conditions, our, their living conditions and our kids' living conditions, like we have to be able to say, okay, the state is willing to fund partial seismic upgrades on the West Coast for elementary school facilities, but they're not willing to give our teachers a raise. Right. Or we're willing to build a road or a bridge to here or a seawall around lower Manhattan, but we're not willing to spend money on these other things. Right. And the fact that we can remind people and raise demands that we can have an influence on our built environment. Yeah. It's not just a thing that happens. There are people that are involved in that happening and there's money and funding that are involved in ha- in that happening. Yeah. And too frequently that's just kind of lost. It's just like, oh, that's a thing that just happens. Yeah. But there's a whole series of processes that cause it to happen and we can raise the fact that the struggles that are happening are related there are so many connections to infrastructure, so many connections to funding, and our world really could be a much, much better place, both in terms of how we relate to other people, but how we actually relate to our environment and how we live if we demand changes in that built environment right. as well, and more control over what that built environment looks like. Yeah, totally. And frequent listeners to the show will know about the Architecture Lobby, um, which is a group of architects that are carrying out this work. But um, I'd also be remiss to not mention uh, Science for the People, um, which, which is an organization that you're a part of. Uh, um, tell, tell us about it. Yeah, so I've been working with Science for the People. It was an organization that existed from the 60s through the 80s, a collection of left-wing scientists and engineers. Their project at the time was largely publishing a magazine that was, you know, articles that impacted social movements at the time. So a lot of arguments about um, against eugenics, in favor of abortion rights, against the war, um, you know, anti-nuclear, but written by people in the sciences and engineering. We're reinvigorating that group. Um, We have a collection of articles that should come out at the end of this month, um, actually, on geoengineering, specifically in the debate around geoengineering that's been happening. So I- I don't know about that debate. Yeah, it's really fascinating. We should cover that debate on Buildings on Air. It's really interesting. Um, So we're we're working through editing, wrapping up editing those articles and and releasing them. But we're also doing a lot of um, concrete organizing work, more, I think, than the original organization did Uh around, um, in New York, some anti-pipeline struggles, um, working with 
with uh, Columbia graduate students that we're organizing. There's been graduate Ooh, student organizing yeah, yeah. that we're involved with across the country. There's a brigade of people going down to Puerto Rico um, to work with some activists, like on-the-ground activist organizations there um, for like radical activist work in addition to like how can we concretely as scientists and engineers like contribute to rebuilding efforts and rebuilding that is in the yeah. actual interests of people and not in the interests of P3s and the giant P3 conference that happened <laughs> yes. in Puerto Rico in June about how to rebuild Puerto yeah. Rico for corporations. Um, yeah. So, yes, yeah, so Science for the People is a wonderful organization. Yeah. Um, I think it's just scienceforthepeople.org. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that also reminds me, and maybe this is a good uh, earbug to, to leave the segment on, uh, was the, the gentleman uh, who, who uh, said during the conversation period on Thursday after you talk, uh, uh, Public-private partnership, P3, more like uh, pick people's pockets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, go forth, use that one. <laughs> uh, Neil, Andrea, thank you so much for joining Buildings on Air. Um, and uh, there's also you, uh, you, a day left in Socialism 2018 conference. It's going on today and tomorrow. Um, so if this uh, conversation has piqued your interest, there's plenty more good ones to be had there um, in the next day. It's over by McCormick. Um, all right. Well, thanks, y'all, and uh, thanks, have a Stephen. good rest Thank of you. your weekend. Yeah. Oh, hello there. Ah, oh, it's you again. Oh, forgive me. Where are my manners? I just got back from Mar-a-Lago, and one of the most delightful topics of conversation was on givers and takers. It's sad. But Lumpin' Radio's great programming and community voices simply cannot exist without your generosity. They need you to give them money right now at lumpinradio.com. Preferably a considerable amount of it. But according to what our emperor told me over cocktails, this makes them leeches. <laughs> I guess they brew through their trust fund. Run along now to lumpinradio.com. They tell me your recurring gift will make a difference. Maybe you could give me another champagne on the way, no? Yeah. How rude. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. Um, we're here with Tom Lee. Uh, Tom Lee, uh, you can introduce yourself if you want. <laughs> but, sure. But you're, yeah, we're, you're the ringer for, for this, this month's <laughs> mailbag segment. The mailbag is, of course, the segment of the show where we answer your listener questions about buildings. Um, there's still time to get questions in. You can tweet them at Buildings on Air. Um, that's at BLDGS on air, um, and we'll do our best to answer them on the show. Um, usually, we have Anne Louie and Craig Greshke from Future Firm here, um, but Tom, you've got you've got some big shoes to fill, or at least yes. four shoes to fill because they have you know. Uh, but my feet are probably big. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, 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 who who is Tom Lee? Uh, tell us tell us about yourself. So I am. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, I am a design principal at a firm called HDR. Uh, we have uh, I I oversee the design direction for the Chicago office of HDR. HDR is a uh, 10,000 person engineering and architecture practice. Yeah. Um, and my uh, previous life, of, I've, been, I've been with HDR for about four years now. And previously I was with John Ronan's office for about eight years and have been at 
a number of different practices, um, small and large. Yeah. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And um, you you are, I, I am a former employee of HDR. And yes. <laughs> so, still friends. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, well, I appreciate you being on the show. Uh, um, and I've got a lot of silly questions about sure. buildings um, from, <laughs> as, as I always say, uh, um, not all these questions were sent into our mailbag, but they are all real questions. <laughs> Questions. Um, <laughs> so um, let's see. Uh, I've got some. I'm, I'm trying to think about where to start here, um, and I've I've got some questions for you too, Tom. Um, sure. But uh, maybe we'll start with this one: um, How to politely tell a client that they don't know what the f they are talking about? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so I'm guessing a disgruntled uh, a disgruntled architect probably sent this one in looking for some advice. <laughs> How do you tell? Well, oh, geez. Keep in mind, non-commercial radio, uh, no cursing. So, uh. no cursing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've had different. I mean, we've been very lucky to have some um, very um, great clients, and so I don't. Uh, recently, and, and it took some training. So we yeah. have a client where we, when we first started working on their projects, and it's been kind of an ongoing relationship. Um, and you know what projects I think we're talking about. I, um, I do. <laughs> I remember going in. It was the first project that I inherited or came into at HDR. And coming from Ronan's office, it was a totally different type of client where, you know, in a small practice, you have the benefit. Or when you're a real well-known design firm, you're, you have the benefit of a client who selected you and then continues to work with you and right. selected you based on your work. Yeah. This meeting was totally different. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I walked into a room for the first time with 25 people in it. Um, and nobody at the table had much of a hand in selecting you. They yeah. had no idea what you did, what your past life was, what you were interested in. They just saw you as a person who would provide a service. Right. Um, and we had a group of clients that um, all they wanted to see was photorealistic renderings at every meeting, um, and they just wanted to judge what that was about. Yeah. And they, the first few meetings didn't go well because <laughs> all they wanted us to do, these were healthcare projects, and all they wanted us to do was really big houses. Yeah. Um, that had that where healthcare <laughs> services would be provided inside. Yeah. And and we had to. In that case, you know, we had to sort of break down and abstract the problem into a series of smaller problems. And what we did was got them to agree on the solution for each of the smaller problems yeah. first. And then the aggregate of those things that we put back together, um, they could better understand. And it was not a house. It was uh, something that had a bit more of a modern expression, yeah. I'd say. But, um, so that was one way is that we tried to, at least for me, I, I always try to understand where they're coming from. Um, yeah, and show them through dialogue that we can yeah. tell them that they don't quite know what they're doing. So we would have a much heavier hand in that. Yeah, that's a very diplomatic and uh, sensible and, uh, answer. My <laughs> my answer my. was going to be uh, 
to explain to them that I can do it their way, but they're going to have to sign a waiver. Uh, yes. <laughs> We've done that too. And it's, it's amazing how that waiver, like seriously, when you send that letter, it'd yeah. be like, okay, but we need you to sign off on this. Right. It changes their opinion, right? Yeah. Away. Yeah. Yeah. So, but those tend to go better when you have a, a bit of a rapport. Like once you have, we have clients where we've had, we have a good rapport with them and I have no problem telling them that what they're doing is wrong. Yeah. And, yeah. And they appreciate it. With that. curse words, maybe even. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Those are the best clients. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, next question. Um, and this, so a lot of the questions in the mailbag are like kind of technical, but seeing as you're a design architect, I tried to pick some good designy ones. Sure. <laughs> Although we still got some technical questions around, uh, okay. but, but here's, here's a solid designy question. Does it look tacky to mismatch furniture? For example, if you mix a modern sofa with an old fashioned accent chair, does this look bad? For me? No. Yeah. I think it's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I always like the contrast between times and errors and it has to be like the right chair and it has to be the right sofa yeah um but i love that contrast because i think that the interiors and i'm a little bit more uh, interested in interiors at the moment I, I don't know why but i find it more interesting that things tend to tell a story yeah you know it's one thing you just found an old chair and paired it together but if it had a meaning to it i think that that becomes more special and i i appreciate the contrast between things i think you appreciate uh, the contrast between something that's modern and simple and something that might have a little bit more yeah um flourish to it if you will yeah um and so it's funny cuz like I'm we're looking for a condo right now and we're seeing all of these different juxtapositions of furniture and um some of them are pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could go real south real fast. Yeah. Real fast. <laughs> but I, I actually think it's well done as long yeah. as they, the, the pieces have meaning. So. Yeah. When I think, too, it's like if you can match some parts of the finish or something, like especially yes. with like most old furniture is going to be made out of wood. And if it's not particularly nice wood, like uh, I have no problem with painting it. Right. right? And like yeah. you can paint to match like things or, you know, maybe it's the same kind of leather but two wildly different styles. Right. There's like totally ways to like tie the things together, even if they're very disparate, and that's yes. really cool. That, yeah, yeah, I would agree. It, it has yeah. to have some some dialogue, yeah. even if it's minor. Yes, and scale is another yeah. one. Yeah. Totally. Yes, because, uh, you know, I always find it funny, like old, old furniture is so much smaller just as a gen or much more huge. Right. Because <laughs> right? it's like either for <laughs> like uh, 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 folks, folks who are on the low side of the economic equation to like yes. put in their tiny apartment <laughs> yes. or uh, people to fill their like manor house with uh, giant stuff. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. The, the other part is how does it sit? In the space. Yeah. You know, and I think that that makes a big difference too. Yeah. Um, how it's arranged. So. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to my mother, uh, who's a master at doing this with furniture. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, if, if I'm any good at this, it's only because of, uh, of her. Um, <laughs> and I don't know that I'm particularly good at it. I, uh, I like the big buildings. I, but I, I'm also fascinated both interiors at the moment. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's may maybe... Um, because now now I work at the small office where right. so much of what we do just kind of by nature of the work is dealing interior. with interior yeah, yeah. Um, because they're the, you answer the big questions about what you're doing pretty quick. Right. Yeah. Which is it's like definitely not the case at a large office where it's all about those kind of big questions. Um, right. Or you have people who specialize in just the furniture. Right. right. 
Yes, I'm yep. the engineer and the designer and the accountant and the legal team. And the HR. And HR, yes. Um, All right, next question. Um, Also on the subject of tchotchkes, (laughs) um, this is going to push like our, our, like the love for tchotchkes that we, or like mismatched eclecticism that we just expressed. Um, Why do you suppose it is that the Statue of Liberty is never used in home decor? (laughs) 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 There are no Statue of Liberty lamps. Compare that with flags, eagles, bells. There's all kinds of things that are flags, eagles, and bells. The only statue is a souvenir when it comes to the Statue of Liberty. We um, said there aren't lamps. Yes, right. Yeah, exactly. When wouldn't you think it would lend itself to more, um, more, more use in home decor? The Statue of Liberty. I mean, it's perfect because you could totally see it holding a lampshade yeah. or a light bulb. Right. Yeah. I feel like I've seen that, right? I, maybe it's just like such an <laughs> like an easy thing. To <laughs> oh, I was thinking like semi-transparent um, green plastic. Oh, um, and then yes. Put a light bulb inside of it, like those Himalayan like um, salt lamps, but yeah. instead of salt, you have Statue of Liberty. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that needs to happen. Um, I, th- I think if if uh, surely that's been done, but if it hasn't, maybe this is like a huge business opportunity yes. for us. But it's <laughs> the proportion of it, though, is such that you have like the pedestal that it sits on and then the statue itself. Yeah. But, you know, she would probably be covered. Most of her would be covered by a lampshade. Right. So that's maybe it, true. It was, maybe somebody prototyped one and it just didn't yeah, work Yeah, you'd have to have some sort of like extension. Right. And then aesthetically, <laughs> does it come out of the torch um, or yes. does it come out of the head? Right. Um, I imagine aesthetically you'd want it to come out of the hand, but then that's uh, Seems natural. out of the center of gravity. And, um, but that's a great question. You know, I mean, my, my wife and I, we, when we travel, we try to buy one cheesy tchotchke. Yeah. We have like the the Eiffel Tower and it's like, you know, yes. everyone's got one of those. And Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I have a Sears Tower that I bought from Walgreens that is really good, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, <laughs> well, I I have a question. Like, so you get all, you have all these tchotchkes. You have like a, a beautiful, like modernist apartment. Like how, how do you reconcile that eclecticism? Um, or do you? You just like put them on the shelf. We give them space, ah. so they sit in very spare. Yes, they actually currently sit in our nightstands. So, and we don't have a ton of them yet. Yeah. So it it, it and like we have these like fake clay soldiers from um, China that we just got yeah. to, and so they just they they kind of work just because yes. they're. I think they work because they're, there's nothing around them. Right. It's pretty they empty. become, um, as as Frazier often says, yes. objets. <laughs> 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 Which is one of my favorite things from that show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like another another one of my truisms, which is uh, you can you anyone can be a minimalist if you have enough space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is also true. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, that's that's solid interior decorating advice. I love the mailbag. You get <laughs> you get a laugh and some some uh, good recommendations. Um, let's see here. Next question: um, Will radiant underfloor heating give uneven heat to the house? I'm considering radiant underfloor heating, but we have a house with the long side directly facing the sun. So the rooms on the sun side warm up a lot on a sunny day, but the rooms on the back side of the house don't. I'm worried that underfloor heating will either underwarm the back or overwarm the front. 
that's the question. Have you ever worked on radiant flooring? Um, maybe I haven't done anything with. Oh no, we did. Yeah. Uh, the the Poetry Foundation has radiant heat. Yeah. Uh, by the curtain wall, but um, you know, we just saw a unit today that had radiant floor heating, which is a little strange because yeah. you normally see that in a high rise. Um, oh, but, that is very unusual. Right, but you can zone it. Yeah. So, I mean, I would, I don't know how big their space is and, and that sort of thing, but yeah. I would look into zoning the two different sides. I mean, it's a serious consideration. Yes. You know, yeah. We live in a Mies building and we face west and it gets yeah. toasty in there um, yeah. at, at times. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I would look at zoning that space. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it actually might work better than, um, um, forced air heating because yes. you don't have the the on off all the time, and it doesn't dry out the air. Yeah. So generally speaking, people find the radiant heat to be more comfortable, right? And and more even in general, and especially yeah. when you're walking on it barefoot, it feels really good. Yeah, it uh, does in the winter. So yeah, it is. It, it does lend itself to a more yeah. comfortable environment. So. Yeah. I, and I'm, I don't know if it, I'm sure it's come up on this show before, but like I always find I'm a big fan of radiant heating for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kyle Moe talks a lot about this uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in his kind of books on like thermal energy and buildings about like how it's just cheaper to run in the long term, even though it's a little bit more expensive up front because you're heating a medium of like water, Water that's more dense than right. heating air, so the the energy is just it's like much more efficient, um, like just like because of physics mm-hmm. and the way that your body, um, like. I don't know, I was going to say calculates, but the way that your body like experiences thermal comfort, like as a function, not only of air temperature, but also of like infrared heating. Yeah. And so, which, which I always find really mind blowing, like, cause mm-hmm. you know, your the air can be super cold, um, right. but as long as all of the surfaces that you know, have line of sight to your body are warm, yes. then you'll be fairly comfortable. I mean, right, within right. reason. Right. But, um, but that's like kind of the principle of like sure. r- radiation right and radiant flooring and all of that um so yeah like it's a it's a good thing if you can swing it it's not yeah. it doesn't always make sense no um, i and yeah. i went to school with kyle yeah in yeah undergrad. he was older than i was but yeah I yeah was just a low-life freshman when he was there but. yeah it's a great book i'm i'm also i we i know we've talked about this in a previous mailbag i'm a big fan of his stick versus stack yeah. um distinction you know the idea that like now we build things with um you know like sticks and then we clad them and and versus the, the stack which is you know like bricks and stone and things that kind of yes. have a thermal weight um i mean that's like a big question and my design practice right now, which I guess now that I think this is the question that I had for you. I mean, because I think as a designer, like you're you're really invested in kind of materiality and thinking through um, that that kind of aesthetic. And I and I think one of the things that I I admire about the way that you design is the way and this this I'm sure this will come up in the next segment, too. Um, Sorry, I'm kind of like actively untying this knot in my brain. Is that, you know, when I was at the AIA convention, mm-hmm. um, so much of that, the convention floor, the expo floor, was about like finishes that you Z clip on to the side of a building. Yes. Right. And like, it was like very clear to me that like the market for building materials, like that's what they think architects do. Yes. And also, 
by and large, they don't seem to be that wrong in my estimation. But no. but I'm I'm curious as as someone who's invested in kind of materials and the like look and feel of, of that kind of thing. Um, like how how do you think through like that aspect of like contemporary building that like it, you know that seems to be it's like right. so much of it is out of our hands even right? I mean because yes. of bu- budget constraints and etc. But but how do you kind of approach that? I think that we, um, and as you would know, I mean, we start the design process in our office by asking a lot of questions first. Yeah. And, and we try to determine, you know, I, I've always believed that as part of our work uh, that you can, if you read uh, a context, however yeah. large, um, and just look at its materiality, it tells you a story. Yeah. Um, and it, and it might suggest what you should or should not do. Yeah. Um, and and so if you can start to, the more you read into that story and understand that story, then it it's, for me, I like hearing that voice of, well, this building really should be a masonry building. Right. <laughs> or should this, re- does this really want to contrast with that, con- the, does the context or city need something different? Yeah. Um, and so we, we grapple and, and wrestle with that question quite a bit. And then obviously you lay in or overlay budget, but there's different ways to accomplish different things. And so we start there. Mm-hmm. And, and if we, how do I put this? We... Once we land on a material, mm-hmm. um, say brick, for mm-hmm. instance, which we've we land on frequently because we like brick is cool. Yeah, and we yeah. like all the different aspects. There's a depth and rich and richness yeah. and complexity to brick, um, and that it quite frankly works in a lot of the contexts in the cities where our, our clients have buildings. So yeah, um, it's something that we we gravitate towards, um, and it's not a rain screen system. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, in a lot of our projects, we like to understand the, how the bricks are laid um, will lend itself to a different character, whether we yeah. add texture or that sort of thing. So, and we would, we like to know the material early on because you would design a brick building differently than you would one that was all curtain wall. Right. Because it says different things. Yeah. Um, and that's how we would start. And yeah. <coughs> versus I think that there are designers who, and, and I think that sometimes in interiors practices you, you get this um, where, and this is not an editorial on interiors, but it becomes so much about selecting products that you know right. or are familiar with um, versus trying to select the material that's right, and then you go find the product. Yeah. You know, yeah. And we've used rain screen systems. We've used uh, wood rain screen systems because... You know, it allowed us to use wood on a project that where the client didn't want uh, any maintenance. Yeah. But we thought that the wood was the right decision. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to agree on allowing us to do that. Yeah. Um, and it's held up very well. And, and we've had a lot of compliments on it. But it's um, but the product or the system is always the result of a broader design yeah. study versus or questioning versus we don't start with the system. Yeah. It'd be very easy to just simply change out the pieces right yeah that makes sense and uh for the non-architectural audience rain screen is the it's it's when you literally have a screen in front of like a a, a less (laughs) permeable uh sort of building material that's maybe cheaper and more resilient Mm -hmm. um and it i don't know i'm always fascinated by it because it like does create a pressure differential Mm -hmm. like even though it's like you know a pretty open thing um because the the way that the wind impacts it and it keeps uh the pressure differential 
differential between the interior and the exterior from just sucking water through the facade. Right. It's like a, it's kind of amazing how well it works, mm-hmm. even though it just seems like um, a, a, an aesthetic addition. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, and, and I also think too, it's like a lot of it's like in like in the details in the sense that, um, uh, you know, when one of my pet peeves is seeing tile that ends in a Schluter strip. Like the Schluter strip is like a thin metal strip <laughs> yeah. without uh, that, that usually goes on the edge versus like a bullnose tile, which is a curved piece of tile that like either wraps slightly around the corner mm-hmm. because like, um, I don't know, like this is me being like a weird, like IIT, like Mies architecture nerd, because like, this is like a classic sort of Mies trick of like how you make something like, like ceramic or like whatever, mm-hmm. like look more substantial. Like when you end right. something with the Schluter strip, which totally sometimes you have to do for budget reasons or like for simplicity's sake or whatever, like um, it's definitely easier, but it makes the the ceramic tile look like wallpaper or, right. or, or like just very applied. But when you have a bull nose, it looks like a thick, like strong thing. Like, right. and I, like Mies Vandero at Crown Hall, like he does this trick with the travertine where on the steps, um, the steps are two inch pieces mm-hmm. and then there's the pavers on the actual porch and those pieces are only like three quarters of an inch thick. So there's a cost savings built into it. Mm-hmm. But when, because you have the kind of, you've seen the two inch, the, the edge right. of right. the two inch thick pieces, you just kind of um, like extend that throughout assume, the project. Yeah. And so yeah. you save the cost, but there's still that, that feeling of solidity and everything else. Right. Right. Which is actually like not very uh, materially honest at all, <laughs> like in the way that like we usually ascribe like that kind of material honesty or truth to Mies, but like it does speak to some sort of essential quality, which I guess is the thing that we really want when right, when right. we care about this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, it's not a mailbag if I don't go on a rant about Mies and truth and materials. So <laughs> check that one off the list. <laughs> The obsession of turning the corner. How do you address the corner? Yeah. All right. Well, you you had a question. Um, I have it written down. Um, I'm fully prepared to ask it on your behalf. Um, But if if you want, feel free. Which question? I mean, I had one from last time that didn't get into the mail. Oh, yeah. And that was like a really weird question. (laughs) This month I have a slightly less weird question. Um, Do you want to do the... Old one or the new one? Do do whatever feels right in your heart. Okay. <laughs> um, how do you guys feel about corn mazes? Corn mazes. Corn mazes. Oh. I've never been to one. Really? I, I think it would totally freak me out. Yeah. Have you been what? to one? I how have. do you feel about corn mazes as a spatial experience? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I think it <clears throat> they're very good maze material. Like the corn, like it gets it gets really dense you know so yeah it feels like like it's a good living wall material mm-hmm. yeah it'd be great to like incorporate more corn and i i don't know my favorite thing um one of my favorite places in the midwest is new harmony indiana which is um uh really strange it used to be like a pre-marks like um 
like communist commune. So it was like an Owenite commune. He was like a rich, like Scottish industrialist who mm -hmm. thought that everyone should share everything. And he like moved all of his people to middle of nowhere in Indiana and like started this thing. And then it became a religious commune later on. And mm -hmm. now there's a beautiful Philip Johnson building and uh, a beautiful Richard Meyer building. Um, oh yeah. yeah like, yeah, yeah. um, it's like early period Richard right. Meyer um, when he was just like totally copying like like Corbusier and early modernism. Sure. Um, I mean, we've talked about Richard Meyer before here on the show and and uh, and and him as a person, but um, it, it's a it's a beautiful building separate from all of that. Um, but uh, their whole thing down there is like everything is like labyrinth themed, and they have like a wow. labyrinth. It's very <laughs> wild. Um, they love their like labyrinth, but it makes me In think. Corn? Uh, and where in corn is that? Where oh no, it's, it's made out no, of? but someone should totally make. Yeah, like sure. I don't know. It's like a it's a native material. Like I and there's got to be a way to like artfully incorporate it into a project, right. and then make mazes out of it because that's really cool. Right. And the only thing I can think of that is one of my favorite pranks that I've ever seen on the internet. Uh, it was like uh, someone walking through a corn maze, mm. and some people who were like dressed as like corn, like pieces of corn maze, oh my God. and so. <laughs> So like this person turned the corner and then they like closed the gap and then they turned around and the <laughs> maze was closed all of a sudden and then they just like walked in on either side <laughs> to this person which seems like the most terrifying thing of all time taking and living architecture <laughs> living architecture to a whole new level yeah right yes I mean it's a very spacious experience and I bet you architects could design a really kick-ass maze uh, Yes. I mean, there's the parameters behind, like, the scale. Like, how wide were the aisles yes. when you went to the corn maze? Oh, when oh, I went, yeah. um, I mean, it, each, like, its aisle was about 10 feet wide. Okay. Oh, so that's, that's very a, generous. That's, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. that experience is different than if it was just, you just subtracted one row. Yes. But, mm -hmm. Yeah. But I couldn't get, like, I... For a while, I had a little obsession with parallax, like when you see oh, like yeah. parallel lines of things put together. And when you look mm -hmm. at them obliquely, they, I'm probably still obsessed with this. But yeah. when you look at them obliquely, it tends to look opaque. And when you look at them, you know, straight on, um, they tend to look more transparent. And like, so there is a grain to a cornfield. It's not a homogenous. Yeah. They're not. The corn is not planted on a grid. It's planted in rows. Yeah. Right. So you do see, like, when you turn, you you can kind of get a sense of what direction you're facing. Yeah. But oh man, we need a we need to do this. We need like an architected like to do yeah with like really wild stuff and like shifts <laughs> in scale and like every uh, the whole the whole nine yards of like architecture nonsense. Like the Swiss Pavilion equivalent of a corn palace. <laughs> yes, like yes. the corn palace in Iowa, but like have a <laughs> professional architect do it. Yes, yes totally. Totally. You should sponsor a competition. With beautiful draw that's a great you idea. You should do a competition. Yes. Yes, would you want to be a judge on a buildings on air corn maze design competition? I don't know when that's going to be, but I'll, I'll accept. Great, awesome, <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, we'll get the we'll get the whole cast of characters on it. Of course, like you know, this buildings on air. I'm a member of the architectural. Lab. We'll have to find a way to pay the competition entrance, but um, <laughs> we can pay them in corn. Uh, okay. <laughs> Wait, is it going to be like structural corn or is it going to be like edible corn? <laughs> Which kind of corn are we going to use? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You leave that uh, open yeah. to interpretation. Yeah, right. I think uh, I think I'm I'm down to hear the whole range of ideas yes. and surreal, you know, popcorn. I'm open to it. Yeah. Like, yeah, let's 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 get the creativity going. <laughs> 
Awesome. Um, well, I have one more question. I think we're about up on time here, but I'd, I'd be remiss not to answer this because it's been sitting in my the buildings on our inbox for a long time. Um, it's a longer question, but I'm, I'm, I'll move through it quick. Um, shout out listener Brian for sending this one in. Um, he has this question about a friend of his who works has worked at the same firm since they got their master's degree, and now um, they're ready to move on. Um, but uh, they've been working on the same project since they've been in this office and the whole project team is an ND is under an NDA a non-disclosure agreement and since that's like the entirety of his professional portfolio um, he wants to know like how he can show that project to potential future employers which is a really tough situation um, yeah do yes. you have any any bright ideas on this one we were just having this discussion the other day oh perfect because i can't say we have a great resolution to it <laughs> yes um that's really tough and, and it depends on the the nature of the um the nda yeah but i imagine like you know there's a there's a practice that um you know we we compete for people right. at times, and we understand that they have a, a lot of their work is very confidential. Yeah, and um, it, that's a very challenge. Like I, I don't quite know how you get around. That. Yeah, I mean, I think that depending on how long they've been out. Yeah. Um, did they say? I, I can't remember if they said that they've been working at the firm for a few years. Yeah, now, they said like three years. Three years. Yeah, that's. That's a lot of time um, because at that point, employers, if I were an employer, I'd want to know what you were working at. Now, right. I would understand um, if somebody came in and said, look, here's my here's the, my independent work. Um, and if they've done work as a competition or something like that on the side, that would be valuable to have um, or, or to show um, and to kind of talk about the roles that they've had. But yeah. is there a way you can redact some of the work? Yeah. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. Or do they... Does or, it mean that they need to kind of just pursue some independent work, yeah. competitions, or speculative? Or I guess if the interview starts to get really serious, uh, you can figure out a way to have the interviewer sign that NDA also. But that might not be possible depending on the, the project. Yeah, they may not have uh, and, the, yeah, yeah. the authority to do yeah. that. But well, I don't know. And it's one of those things, I mean, like, you know, I th- um, people have a – it's in the AIA Code of Ethics, actually, uh, a Code of Professional Ethics, that you're supposed to give people the opportunity to use – use work that they've done in their portfolio um, mm-hmm. just as, as a matter of, of course. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, the legal standing of an NDA probably trumps that. Um, yes, I would yeah. Well, I don't know if that's a satisfying answer, but um, it, yeah. But hopefully uh, at least you can uh, know that there's some solidarity <laughs> yes. out there. Networking. That yeah. Would, that's, that's a big one too. Yeah. So. Well, Tom, uh, we're out of time for this segment. Thanks so much for being a ringer for this month's Buildings Thank on you. Air Mailbag. Um, we'll definitely have you back uh, next time Ben and Craig are out. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, um, have a good rest of your weekend. And Thanks. we'll be back in just a few minutes um, talking about the AIA convention. Are we good? Oh, awesome. Hello. We're back with Buildings on Air. Um, and I am joined on the line by uh, Donna Sink. And, and Ken, Ken, I realize that I might have been messing up your name royally because of an old uh, Twitter handle or something that like permeated into my brain. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, uh, Donna and Ken, uh, superstars of the Arcanac Sessions podcast um, and, and Arcanac generally, Arcanac Sessions, <laughs> one of the one of the best podcasts Don't on architecture, away. certainly uh, uh, more popular uh, than Buildings on Air. Um, can you guys hear me? Oh, I can kind of hear you. Can you say something? Oh, my God. There it is. Okay. We're good now. <laughs> All right. So sorry for the hassle. Okay. So, um, and uh, uh, we're, we're live now. So, um, Ken, Ken and Donna, <laughs> thanks for joining us and bearing through the technical difficulties and being a little slow. Um, so, we still have a, a, a 15 minutes or so to chat. And thanks so much for being on the show. I already uh, introduced you guys as Arcanex superstars. And, um, um, and Ken, I was also saying, I don't know if you heard, that I realized that I, I may have been messing up your name royally for the longest time um because i uh of, of an old twitter handle or something that like buried its way into my brain so um for, forgive me oh. on that one <laughs> i i operate on uh, various pseudonyms just uh, trying to keep people on their toes yeah of course <laughs> yeah it's it's dangerous out there on the uh, uh on the posting world yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I'm I'm stoked to be talking with you guys about the AIA convention, um, and I, I, you know, I kind of um, it was a weird experience. I mean, I, I think uh, there are lots of ups and downs, and um, you know, I spent most of my time uh, with the architecture lobby, um, either preparing for the architecture lobby thinking event that we had, um, or we did some kind of protesting and rallying outside of the convention. Um, but I guess, like, I, what are your thoughts on the kind of convention itself this year? Um, what were the highlights? What were the lowlights? How is it different from um, uh, from previous years? Um, as guests of the show will know, I, I usually set the table with a kind of big unfair question like that and see what, what you guys pick up. Um, so, uh, yeah, what do you think? Ken, you go first. You were there yeah. longer than I, and I think you have some good stories to share. <laughs> sure. I think um, this one was, was uh, you know, as much hype as it you would have thought, um, as, as it had, uh, being in New York City, where the center of the architectural universe, um, it failed miserably. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was I, no, and I really, I mean, I, I there was I've, I've seen some criticism regarding last year's event, um, but there was a lot of big things to take away from that event that I thought started to work its way in some of the chapters. In the Minnesota, uh, AIA was kind of, from my standpoint, leading the, leading the charge and mm. they were to take away from it. So it was like a good message. If some of the characters were not always most favorable, at least there was something that I could see, a very uh, clear line where uh, a message was coming out, even if you know it wasn't a great city to be in, Orlando's not really the ideal city to be right. uh, for an architect, but at least there was something that you could take away and you looked at the chapter and said, wow, the, the chapter actually is taking that and actually moving it forward. This year, you know, there was all this, there was all, you know, my biggest pain, um, there was this, a lot of hoopla around Whitney Young's speech from 50 years ago. Right. <laughs> and there was so much lip service paid to that speech. It was more of a, 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 a 
platform for looking at, hey, look at how how uh, integrated we're doing and, or how integrated we are and how we're meeting these yeah. challenges and we're stepping forward. But it was just, you know, if, if I, and this is my biggest complaint, if Whitney Young was alive today and he saw that 40 people that are on the delegate, 40 delegates that are on the business, uh, at the business session, for this, uh, just this small motion, uh, this small resolution was um, voted on to uh, reaffirm his his speech from 50 years ago that 40 members either abstained or voted against. <laughs> and I just want I just want to I just want to stand up in, in the meeting and go, all right, the 40 who voted no or abstained, could you please stand up so we could tell you? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, and I mean for 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 and those. Now, for those of you who don't know, just you know, Whitney Whitney Young, uh, you know, civil rights leader uh, and and director of uh, uh, HUD way back when, um, yet yeah, like gave a keynote in 1968 and basically told all of the architects in the room um, that they weren't pulling their weight in terms of civil rights, and uh, you know he got a standing ovation um, even though he had really harsh words, and and I think that that really typifies the profession to this day where there's lots of uh, <laughs> applauding right for for all of the right stuff right. but but no real action to solve the problem but just lots of you know things uh, uh, like like a uh, uh, performative kind of acts of, you know, proving that everyone has the right attitude and is woke or whatever, um, but without actually do, doing much. And, and that seems to be as applicable today uh, uh, as it was 50 years ago. Well, and, I, I think, and to, go ahead, yeah, Ken. Go ahead, me. So no, no, no. The, the one thing, the, the thing that really irritated me the most is when you talk, when the at-large people are... Uh, are taking questions from chapters, and then you ask them serious questions about what is our role in this profession. Yeah. Uh, but what is our role in the world? How do we how do we challenge um, the how do we challenge ourselves to be you know what are our values? How do we how do we present ourselves to the world? Should we make a statement against um, uh, solitary confinement or imprisoning? Uh, migrant children and babies in, in, in concentration camps along the border. And the stock message is, we don't want to get too political. And I'm like, you guys have learned absolutely nothing from this statement. So, Whitney Young would say, um, yeah, civil rights was, a, was of its kind, it was contextually appropriate message. Right. But today, it's civil rights and human rights. And if you can't evolve, to see that you are on the wrong side of this issue and make a statement against what's happening in this country, you are failing. Yeah, and absolutely. they haven't done that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Donald yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I think that Ken, you're absolutely right. Both of you are right. That the, the AI is saying all kinds of the right things. Now, I think at the local level, level, and at a more sort of grassroots level, amongst the younger people in the AIA that I know, I do think that change is serious and it's happening and it's happening slowly. But at the upper level, all I see, and it was on really strong display at this event, but at the key, the first keynote, the first night, is everything is so strict, so scripted and so controlled, and they have a teleprompter, and Robert Ivy walks out and says exactly what's on it, and he is not going to deviate because he's afraid to. I, I mean, I will say here, I, I think it's time for Robert Ivy to 
to retire. It's time for us to get a new leader. Um, he it, he did not impress me in the least at the keynote that I saw him at this time. He is yeah. just, he's terrified to take a risk. And at this moment in our profession, that you know, risk is all around us. Whether you're a, a 50-year-old something practitioner like me or a recent gradu- graduate, our profession is changing and changing rapidly. And if we're not, you know, brave enough as an organization to take that on, we need new blood that will. Yeah, definitely. And I, yeah, and I, you know, I think it's, it's really telling that they, they kind of have this very like PR stick and, and everything is, you know, written to be as inoffensive as possible by someone else. Um, and, and, uh, you know, like using member dues. Right. (laughs) Um, and it's, it's pretty, it's pretty upsetting. Um, but yeah, and, and I, I agree. I think it's important to say too, uh, you know, that, and I, I tweeted about this when I was live tweeting from the convention, uh, about how like it is a good thing that even if they're like only doing this in a kind of very performative way that does mm-hmm. open mm-hmm. up a space for the people who are serious and I think like you were saying that right. you totally see that uh, and so so it's a really good thing um, but also like uh, we should never stop holding them to account um, to, to, for, exactly. to be the real deal <laughs> yeah exactly Exactly. To not just say the words and yeah. to go off script if you need to because you screwed something up or forgot something. I mean, yeah, we need to be humans first <laughs> yeah. and then professionals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean I too much. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I, I think even for me, this the kind of spatial arrangement of the convention this year made it more difficult. Um, you know, Very. because the 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 whole thing wasn't in the Javits Center. A lot of it were in, was in right. like hotels that were forty minutes walking away, um, and like all of the good stuff, like the political stuff, was at the satellite venue um, at kind of weird times that made it really hard to get to. I don't think I ever did. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, which and and I don't I don't know. Part of the conspiracy theorist in me wants to be like this is totally intentional, <laughs> but uh, I'm yeah. I'm sure it yeah. wasn't. Um, but but it nevertheless seems like a kind of missed opportunity um, because there were kind of substantial conversations happening in the wings, just not on the kind of main right. main floor. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know what what else did you guys think about the kind of convention? I mean, what were what what were your um, highlights and lowlights, uh, or expectations and whatever the opposite of expectations are? <laughs> well, I think I'll give you a quick so I'll give you a quick lowlight, and uh, <laughs> this happens. Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, we're talking about lip service, and we're talking about what's important and um, how messages are translated and how members act. And and I'm not, I'm not going to pick on Carl Elefante too much, but this was a particularly difficult situation. And I'm not sure. I, I just said to people, I said, it, this was a one drink minimum for me. I would have said that. <laughs> and it was just so inappropriate that all we have taken for me to say, but it was probably just one half watered or watered down drink to say something. But, so, <laughs> A an SAIA member, George Miller, who's a former partner at uh, PayCom 3 and a former president of the AIA. So Carl Fontes, at the there's this there's this area set up on the main uh, kind of on the main level was dedicated to what we were going to commit to as professionals to end uh, harassment, discrimination, and bullying in the profession. And there's this wall, and it was a wonderful wonderful piece to get people to kind of 
um, articulate the things that they were going to do uh, pursuant to an active role in, in the progression color. Right. And they offered opportunities for signatures and stuff like that. And it, was a, it was a great um, idea. And so Carl was up there talking to one of the um, two of the members who were, uh, who were staffing the booth. And one of them uh, is a female architect, and the other was a male architect. They're, they're having a discussion, and up walks this architect and kind of like, kind of interjects himself in the middle of this conversation. And he clearly knew Carl, and they say, "Hey, Carl," and such and such. And and I, I was like right there observing this, and he turns to the the male architect and shakes his hand, and totally kind of dismisses. The young female architect he was standing next to, hmm. as though she wasn't even there. And you know, here's an opportunity. We're standing in front of this wall. What you're committing yourself to do? <laughs> right. And on the one hand, I'm thinking to myself, I've got to turn around and go, what What are you doing? And I'm now looking to the president, or the you know, the the, the the head of our professional organization standing there and just kind of allowing this to occur. Yeah. And he never formally introduced himself. And um, <clears throat> and then I heard there was this, and I'm sitting there and I'm listening to um, this back and forth chatter between the two of them, where this this older architect is kind of very dismissively referring to this Me Too mo- movement in the profession now. And I'm, kind of, I'm, like, I'm waiting for, for Carl to say something, and he just <laughs> doesn't want to, and that's part, and that's really that's the problem with our profession. Right. Is that we have people that we like, that we have been friends with, or have had some relationship to over time, and they come up and they just are completely um, the person that they are, and we fail time and time again to challenge them on their positions, on the things that they say, or the the ways that they dismiss um women and minorities in the profession and it's just it was just kind of like yeah this is kind of what i expected right 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 yeah well we only have a couple minutes left um don do you have do you have any last thoughts or highlights lowlights uh i'm just you know it was it was great that it was in new york and i was thrilled to be able to also partake in the think in the architecture lobby think in uh uh that was great. Presentation on, yeah, which was wonderful. I was only there for the first little bit of it because I had something else I had to go do. Because in New York, there are so many things to do. <laughs> but it's wonderful that in that that the architecture lobby is still doing these parallel presentations at every event. And I, I just love seeing that energy um, happen. And I think there are, like I was saying, a lot of young people. I, at this point, I'm so committed to staying as an AIA member and working from within. But... Um, I, I could see in a few years kind of saying, yeah, AI is not moving in the direction I need fast enough, and therefore I need to, you know, to drop it and just commit more fully to Architecture Lobby, NOMA, the other organizations that I also am, I believe, a member of. I think I'm membership fees. Um, but, yeah, seeing, seeing the, all of the other, um, yeah, seeing the, the think-in happen was amazing. And, yeah. Ken, you were there for a lot of the think-in also, and it was great. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. No, it was, I mean, you know, I think the great thing about the thinking was that, you know, at the AIA conference, there's people talking about it. And when you're at the thinking, there's actually dialogue yeah. with people in the audience. Yeah. Yeah. And the, 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 
discussion was made richer because of it. There was challenge. There was there was opportunity to challenge other. I wasn't there for the whole day, but um, from what I hear, there was some interesting uh, back and forth um, as the day went on. But it was very. Um, I felt like in the four hours that I was there, I got more out of that four hours than I got out of the three days that I was at the conference. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. There you go. Well, that's, from my vantage point, that's a fantastic recap and place to wrap up this segment. (laughs) (laughs) Donna and Ken, thanks so much for for joining us. Um, You guys can uh, hear hear more from them um, on the Archonnect Sessions podcast, which is totally fantastic. And I imagine there might be um, an Archonnect Sessions episode getting into more depth about uh, some of this stuff. there will be awesome thank you for having us yeah of course Uh, yeah and uh we'll have you on the show again uh sometime in the future i'm sure of it all right anytime (laughs) bye-bye thanks bye all right folks uh that's the end of this month's buildings on air uh this is wlpnlp chicago and uh we'll see you first saturday of august 2 to 4 p.m This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at... B-L-D-G-S on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.